you take your Bibles, if you have them, please, and let's open to Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. Uh, we are following the servant king, Jesus Christ, and in so doing, we are being uh, redefined ourselves, our own lives being redefined by his. Y'all, we're not studying this gospel to learn more about Jesus. We study it in order that we might become more like Jesus, that we might be changed from the inside out. Speaking of change, how about a week in which we experience a seismic shift in the political landscape? Uh, I don't know who stayed up late. You know, I'm usually in bed by 10, easily. And uh, I was in for the long haul on this one. Me and my girls stayed up to the wee hours, and so about 1.30. I think all of us, though we didn't see something coming, would say, who? There's some change, and there's some change still to come. That certainly happens with two people in our text today. We're going to read about a healing and a resurrection. And these two people, they're, they're not the same. But I would suggest that the people who saw it happen were not the same. They couldn't be, at least not in regards to how they view Jesus, the servant king, and what it means to follow him. And I'm praying, and I really believe this, that that will be true for us today. I'm not saying anyone's going to be healed today. I'm not saying someone's going to be resurrected uh, this morning. But I am saying we will be changed. And as altering as those two things, think about it, a healing and a resurrection would be, um, I know this is going to sound strange, but that wouldn't be the most important thing that could happen to us today. Certainly not the most important thing that happens in this story. And you might say, well, Lloyd, wait, wait. If, if I was healed from a terminal illness, that's what matters the most. Or if we lost a child, I mean, the most important thing would be that they would be resurrected and we'd get them back. And I would say to you, that's not what this story tells us is the most important thing. Well, then what is that's what the story is going to tell us. We're in another section of Mark we call a Mark and Sandwich. <laughs> you remember when I drew that up on the board? Where Mark starts a story, top slice of bread, and then the story gets interrupted. And we get the middle section, the meat and the lettuce and the tomatoes in here. And then he puts the bottom slice on the sandwich and it's connected to the top slice and it becomes one unit. And he does it for a reason and different reasons in different contexts. And we'll see his reason here as we come to the end. By way of context, again, we want to understand it and apply it appropriately. I want you to understand we're coming to the end of a section. And so if we're coming to the end of a section, we need to make sure we keep the front of the section connected so as we interpret this part, we don't do it in isolation. Well, what's this section? Back in chapter 4, verse 35, Mark begins to show us four ways in which Jesus exercises his authority. He's overall. And this is the section that, that we're in, and we're in the back end of it. And so he says Jesus is, Jesus is over nature. He, he can calm a storm with a whisper. And then last week, Michael took us through that Jesus is, is an authority over demons, that the demons of Gerasene... You know, went into the pigs and plunged uh, to their, uh, the, the pig's death. And now we're picking up these last two 
signs, miracles, if you will, where we're going to see Jesus is over disease. He's in authority over disease, and oh, the worst of all, he's in authority over death. But we want to keep it together, because when we say, well, what does this mean? We're going to see it connects to the whole. We'll break the passage out, and just like a sandwich, in three parts, the top slice is going to be desperate Desperate faith, it's the focus of the passage is faith. Desperate faith, it's Jairus' faith. And then we're going to take the middle section of the passage, 25 to 34, and we're going to call that trembling faith. This is the woman's faith, trembling faith. And we're going to put the bottom slice on the sandwich, as Mark does, it will be tested faith. Desperate faith, a tested faith here in the middle, and then, or, or I'm sorry, trembling faith in the middle, and then a tested faith on the bottom. Look at your Bibles and follow along with me as we take the top slice of bread, desperate faith, the faith of Jairus. Chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. A synagogue official would be a layperson, chairman of the board, so to speak, of a synagogue. Probably be a person of wealth and means. Certainly going to be a person highly respected in the community. And his role was to make sure the synagogue ran smoothly, that uh, rabbis were there when they needed to be, that there were readers who were going to read the scripture. Honestly, you know, like for us, it'd be that the grass is cut and the roof's taken care of. That's his role in that community of faith. Now, something we know about rabbis, scribes, uh, Pharisees who, who, who teach in the synagogue is that they hate Jesus. Are you, are you with me? We already know that from earlier chapters. What do the religious leaders already in our story want to do to Jesus? Tell me, what do they want to do? Kill him. So you see that animosity is there. And, and so when we read that a synagogue official came and threw himself at the feet of Jesus, we as readers should be going, oh my gosh, that's shocking. Because the original audience that reads this was shocked. And the people who saw it happen, I assure you, the crowd were going, that's a, he's, he's down. It's a shocking development that we see. Now, Jarius had faith, okay? Let's, let's not discount this at all. The whole section's about this. He believes Jesus can heal his, his daughter. But if I ask you to describe his faith, if I said, well, you know, what kind of faith does he exhibit? I think we would look at this and we would go, well, it's, it's desperate faith, no doubt, um, is, it, uh, is it worshipful faith? Uh, I don't think so. Is it uh, self-centered faith? Uh, yeah, yeah, he wants something from the Lord. He doesn't want the Lord, he just wants something, him to do something. So it's got this, you know, it's got this, uh, how do I say it? It has this imperfections, can I say that? It's not a complete faith, it, but it's, it's faith that he brings to Jesus. I don't want us to forget that because it'll matter in the end. Now, in coming to Christ, as I said, a well-respected guy in the community. He's back in Capernaum, so he's back on the Jewish side. He's you know, the, or the, back on the Jewish side, not the, more the Gentile side of the lake. So for him to come and throw himself down there, I don't want us to miss this as well. What did it cost him? Just think about it. What did it cost him to do that? 
cost him his reputation, didn't it? Um, Would we say it cost him his role as the synagogue official? Uh, If there were any scribes and Pharisees that saw him do it, you think it did? I think, you know what I'm saying? In in other words, it cost him dearly, didn't it? I mean, he he was out in the open with this thing. (laughs) It's like, if you want to talk about change, you know, whether his daughter gets healed or not, his life will never be the same. We can say that just from a cultural perspective. But something has become more important to Jarius than everything he ever worked for. Than, than the status he worked for, the, 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 the financial security that he has, his reputation in the community. He's worked all his life for it, but something else matters. What is it? What matters more than all that? Say it. His daughter's life. Yeah, and every dad in the room gets that. But I'll ask you this question. What if... What if Jarius is actually wrong? What if the most important thing isn't his daughter's life? Well, without delay, Jesus follows the man toward his home. You know, unfortunately, it's a big crowd. They're crowding in on him. You got to think about this like you're coming out of Bridgestone Arena after a concert or Ryman or Titan Stadium. You know, it's fine you're going in, everybody's moving, but when the game's over, the concert's over, how do you leave the arena? Do you know, in other words, here's, here's Jarius and comes, you got to hurry. You, uh, you, you know, we're going to, my, my daughter uh, is going is to die. Let's go. And how do you leave? I mean, you're bumping into people, the crowds, it's like sludge moving through, you know, a channel. Uh, you can't go quickly at all. Um, It's a desperate faith. Did I read 21 to 24? Did we read it together? I'm sitting here going, what did I not do? I didn't read 21 to 24. I just described the whole thing. Look at 21 to 24. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side. Did I read this? Oh, I did read it. Okay, so my... It's only the third time I've done this. He follows, it's crowded, and they're not moving very quickly. From the desperate faith, go to a trembling faith. I want you to look at verses 25 to 34. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up, In the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched my garments? Who touched me? And he looked around to see. He sees the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. 
For 12 years, this woman has had uh, menstrual bleeding. Um, Ellen Joyner's dad's a OBGYN, and last night she, she texted me. She said, I asked my dad about that, and he said it probably could be fibroids or it could be cervical cancer. We, 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 know, we don't know. What we know was she was bleeding for 12 years. And from a physical standpoint, let's just imagine this. And I'm not a woman, but, you know, a woman especially can imagine, but, but to, to be bleeding continuously, chronically for 12 years. Can you imagine the physical toll on a woman's body? You think this woman ever got anywhere without, I'm so tired, I'm exhausted, I'm just tired all the time. I got just anemic and all the other things that would come with the emotional weight of that that would fall upon her. It gets worse, by the way. And that's why, why Mark just kind of loads up. She did this, she did this, she did this, she did this. It was bad. Relationally and spiritually, she was an outcast. You got to go here spiritually and relational. She, she's an outcast. Leviticus, Leviticus 15 says that when a woman is on her period, that, that uh, she's unclean. Don't, don't read into this anything crazy or weird. You know, God in the Old Testament is showing us what sin does, and, and sin, you know, puts us outside, and it's that picture of that uh, within that framework. And so this woman's unclean, and she's unclean for seven days after her period stops, and then she's got to go through ritual cleansing, and then she's put back in the body. She can come back in the, in, in, in the tabernacle, you know, within the community at that time. But what do you do if you're a woman and you never stop bleeding? How do you get ritually clean? How? You don't. She can't. Talk about isolation in this context. It's like a leper, you see. It's also, you know, if if a woman's unclean, understand that she knows this and everyone else knows this. If she touches you, you're unclean. Can you imagine what she's feeling, thinking as she moves through that crowd. Everyone she touches is unclean in her mind. You know, they're unclean, they're unclean. What if I touch Jesus and he becomes unclean? Who knows what's going through her mind? Financially, she spent every dime. I don't know, if we hit every area of her life, put it in the pit? Now we got all her money because doctors couldn't heal her and only got worse. But we have to say, like Jairus, she had faith, right? I mean, she believed, I mean, she believed that if she touched his garment, which was common in, in, in those de- days that, that, that you could touch something you see and be, be healed. She believed that if she touched his garment that she would be healed, so she had some measure of faith. But if I asked you, let's really examine her faith. What, let's, let's talk about her faith as well. What kind of faith does she have? What, what might we say about her faith based on what we know? It's a desperate faith too, certainly. Um, is, it, is it purely motivated? Mm, I, I don't think so. Is it self-centered? Yeah, you know, nothing wrong per se, but she just, wants, she just wants to be healed. She's not coming to Jesus like, if I can just fall at his feet and worship him as Lord in faith. It's not that, is it? It's, it's a flawed faith, if I can say that. It's honestly a superstitious faith that she brings to Christ. She thinks that the most important thing in her life is to be healed physically. So like Jarius, I want to suggest she risks everything to be physically healed. But what if being physically healed is not the most important thing? What then? The verb tense tells us that when she was going through that crowd, y'all, she was like the little engine that could. Because when it says, she says, if I could only touch his garment, 
gets in the tents, which tells us she just kept saying, if I can only touch his garment, if I can only touch his garment, if I can only touch his garment, if I can only touch his garment. She touched the garment. She feels something in her body. And I, in my mind's eye, I kind of think she's in this crowd of people. She's getting there. She touched the garment. And when she feels that she's healed, in my mind, I have the feeling that she stopped, that the crowd just kept bumping into her like, you know, the, like a boulder in a stream. It just kept hitting her, but going around her, going around her. And she's there, and she's felt this within her body. And who knows what's going on in her mind. And the only thing she knows is, is that the crowd suddenly stops. And she hears above the noise, who touched my garment? Now, no one knows that she did this, but what has she been saying to herself the whole time? If I only touch his garment. If I... Oh, my gosh. She's, she's got her hand in the cookie jar, you see. And Jesus sees her. And when he does, she's filled with fear and trembling. She comes and she throws herself down. Isn't it interesting? Everybody's throwing themselves down before Jesus. Remember through this whole, this whole section, so to speak. Throws herself down before Jesus and tells him the whole story. And when she told Jesus the whole truth, let me ask you this question. Who else heard the whole truth? Y'all. Can you believe that? Jesus made her do that. That Jesus required of her to tell the story. And so now she's, she's got to tell everybody that she just walked by. They're unclean. She's got to tell the whole group, here's how I lived with my shame. I didn't want anyone else to... Can you imagine? And there's part of me that goes, Jesus, ugh, did you have to have her do that? I mean, couldn't she... Well, Jesus, right, he never asked a question without a reason. I'm going to tell you something. He didn't have her do that without a reason, as we'll see in a moment. Desperate faith, trembling faith, now tested faith. Then we're going to apply this, tested faith. Look at verses 35 to 43. While he was still speaking, picking up the bottom slice of the sandwich now, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people uh, loudly weeping and wailing. By the way, he's a man of means. And even the poorest in this day were required to have some mourners there. You paid mourners, professional mourners who would come, flute players who would you know, play dirges on their flute. And as a man of means, he probably had a pretty good crowd there, weeping and wailing. And in again, Jesus said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child is not, has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. I mean, they know someone's dead when they see someone dead. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, this is Aramaic, it's not Greek, Talitha, come. We don't even have to look it up because it's right before us, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk for she was 12 years old. Wait a minute. Someone else was 12 years in something. Who? Who? She was 12 years dying. Here's a 12-year-old girl who's been living. This is where the sandwich hangs together, you see. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. A wonderful sign of humanity there. She needs, she needs a cracker, 
right, physically. She needs something to eat. She's been out of this. Okay, how was Jairus' faith tested? A number of ways. I'm just going to give you two. The first one, it was tested by delay. This is obvious in the story. It was tested by delay. Um, we read the story, and, and we know that Jairus came and said, my daughter is on the verge of death. So we got this tension in, in the story that says she's about to die. And so Jesus makes his way. Unfortunately, he's making his way like this. I mean, they're just barely making progress. Jairus is probably trying to run, trying to make way, whatever. And then in the midst of this, Jesus stops. Who touched my garment? Jairus. What do you think Jairus is thinking at this moment? Who cares who touched your garment? You know, I mean, my daughter's dying and the woman comes and she starts to, she pours out her whole story. You know, how long did it take for her to tell her whole story? How long does it take for your wife to tell you about her day? I'm just, that was, a, that was not really good, but it was, a, it, was a, it was like these, she tells a whole story, you see, and there's time. And what's Jerry's thinking? I don't know, but I'm, this is a sanctified imagination, but could he have thought you've been, not to be mean, but you know, you've had this, you've had this for 12 years. What would another day mean? My daughter is almost dead, and we're talking All of us, you know, we're all tested by delay, aren't we? I think, I think to delay to us is like the flu. We avoid it. If, if I said, hey, everybody come in and get your non-delay shot, I think everybody would come. You'll never be delayed again in life. No interruptions in your life. You know, we fight the delays, don't we? There's never an accidental delay in the life of faith. So many applications we could make here, but I'll just read a quote from Henry Nouwen, some of you very familiar with, because I think it captures well a way we might consider this. Nouwen writes, he's walking with a professor of Notre Dame where he taught for many years, and the professor says to Nouwen, you know, my whole life I have been complaining that my work was constantly interrupted until I discovered that my interruptions were my work, end quote. Hey, that's, that changed now and significantly. He would go on to write later, quote, It has been the interruptions of my everyday life that have most revealed to me the divine mystery of which I am a part. All of these interruptions presented themselves as opportunities, invited me to look in a new way at my identity before God. Each interruption took something away from me, and each interruption offered something new, end quote. May we... Consider the delays that we face this coming week in a new light, in light of the work of Christ in this story and in our lives. Well, the delay was a test. There's a second test, and I think this is certainly the greatest test of all, is it not? And it's the test of death. The girl died. When Jesus says the girl's asleep, he means that her sleep is temporary that her death is temporary. New Testament writers are going to say this. Paul's going to speak in 1 Thessalonians about those who have fallen asleep. What does he mean they fell asleep? He means those who've died. It's a euphemism for death. And of course, in Christ, death is temporary. Jesus reaches back to what brought Jairus to him in the first place. I love the way the story goes. The people come and say, don't bother the teacher anymore. She's dead. And it says Jesus overhearing. It's literally more probably Jesus ignoring what they said. Immediately says to Jairus, before Jairus can go, oh, before Jairus says anything, Jesus looks at him and says, don't be afraid, keep believing. 
keep believing. Present tense, it means don't be afraid. Keep believing. Keep believing. Keep believing. You know, you came to me because you thought I could do what only God could do, which is to heal that disease. Keep believing. Keep believing. Keep believing. Now, okay, there's the story. What does it mean? How does it redefine our life? Uh, D.A. Carson uh, made a comment that helped me here. This is not my insight, uh, but his, but it helped me immensely. He said, notice that Jesus only commends the woman's faith and not the faith of Jairus. This is, I think it's significant in how we can view the passage. Notice Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now, made you well, get well, get well, made you well. That's sozo. That, that, that's, that's actually the word salvation. It's also the word, you know, delivered, saved. So you could be sozoed from a raging river, delivered from that. But it's also a picture of, of our salvation, which I think is when we connect it to the word daughter, then we're talking about what now? We're talking about a relationship. This is the only time Jesus refers to a woman with the term daughter. I've got two daughters. You say the word daughter to me, and my heart just melts. Daughters. How did Jairus, in verse 22, come to Jesus, fall at his feet, and say, My little, his daughter. Now Jesus looks at this outcast, barren, leper-like woman and calls her what? Oh, you see, this is one story. Do you think if Jesus looked at Jairus and said, okay, your daughter can live, but you'll have to die, what would you think Jairus would have done? What would any dad do? How about Jesus looking at his new daughter who doesn't know yet that he's going to die so that she is his forever. Please understand, she's got faith and in relationship. Did she know that Jesus was going to die on the cross, be buried, raise it? No, but she trusted what she knew in that moment, you see, of Jesus. She had faith in Christ. How was the relationship with Christ secured? By faith. And what kind, let's be honest, what kind of faith did she have? I mean, was this, a, was this the faith of David running out there? I'll take the, what kind of faith did she have? I want to suggest the story says it was a superstitious faith. It, it was kind of a flawed faith. Uh, I'd, I'd call it kind of a weak faith, you know, a trembling faith, a, an uncertain faith, an imperfect faith, just like Jairus' faith. See, the pictures of faith in this story are honestly Pretty weak faith. We would, we would say it that way. But she heard Jesus. She came to Jesus. And she touched Jesus. Really important. I said earlier that, you know, being healed or having a child raised from death, you know. I said, you know what? Those aren't the most important things. And you'd go, well. I can't think of anything more important than that. Well, the story tells us this. Uh, there's two things more important. They tie together. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you two, two sentences, if I may. 
Here are the two things. Number one, and this is elementary but so important. The object of faith is what matters most, not the quality of faith. I think the story is showing us that the object of faith, not the object of faith is what matters most, not the quality of faith. When I say object of faith, it's what are you putting your faith in? It's not how much faith do I have that the stair will hold me. The matter is, you know, will the stair hold me or not? What's my faith in? You know, it's the object of faith, not the quality of my faith. And I think we get off track, so to speak. I think I think we err greatly when we obsess, and this is again where I go, you know, Lloyd, no, everyone doesn't obsess about faith like you do. I know. I'm just telling you I do, okay? So here you go. I, I can obsess about my faith because I can think, you know, my faith's not like so-and-so's faith. Or, boy, they've got such strong faith, and I don't. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait till I build up my faith like a muscle. And I don't really like that analogy because, you know, we can get kind of look in the mirror and go, you know, I'm, yes, I'm getting strong. Oh, my gosh, I think I'm ready to take a step of faith because it's so strong. And If faith is a gift, men and women, how do you make a gift stronger? Do you see that? Faith, that's what the analogy of the muscles I don't quite get because if faith is a gift, which we believe it is, then then, then some of us have more than others. And the point is, use what you got, you know. The faith you have, you, you exercise your faith. Hear me carefully on this, y'all. It's not about your faith. That's what I'm trying to say. And don't take me out of context because faith really matters. Without faith, you're not saved, of course. But you'd be shocked how, you'd be, you know, actually you wouldn't be if you read your Bible in a sense. You read these stories. You'd be shocked at how, at the puny kind of faith that God takes and uses that people have. I mean, if I looked at this woman, I'd almost look at her and go, and even Jairus, I'd go, you know, it's pretty good. But that's kind of mustard seedy faith to me. And in fact, if I looked at it, I'd go, that's, that's, even, that's a mustard seed that's flawed. I mean, I don't even want to plant that one. But it was faith. Sometimes I'll talk to my kids and I'll, you know, father moments, they don't like this. But I'll say, what do you want me to stop doing, start doing, keep doing as a dad? Oh, dad, whatever. No, just tell me, what, what am I doing that you want me to... You know, stop doing this, Dad, or whatever. And so I'm going to give you a stop, start, and a keep regarding your faith, okay? Can I do that? Stop paying so much attention to the quality of your faith. It's a gift. Receive it, whatever you got, and use it. Start paying more attention to Jesus. Let's get our eyes on Jesus, who he is, all he is, all he's promised, and all that he's promised to be and do. Let's get our eyes on Christ and almost honestly, y'all, a little less on our faith and on Him and Him alone. Stop, start, keep coming to Jesus with the faith you have. Just keep coming to Jesus with the faith you have. You don't have to wait till it gets strong. You don't have to compare your faith to another. Whatever you got, bring it. Bring it to Him The object of faith is what matters most, not the quality. And then secondly, the lesson is this. Our greatest need is not a transaction with Jesus, but a relationship. And that never changes. Just, I don't care where you are in your life. Our greatest need is not a transaction with Jesus, but a relationship with Jesus. And this will never change. Changed. Think about the woman. She actually got her transaction. If she's going there to be healed, she got it. 
And honestly, she would have gone home eventually and done what? Been happy. I'm healed. And you know what else she would have gone home and done? I don't know. In a couple years, she'd die and be separated from God forever. And Jesus, knowing what she needs most. Thank God Jesus knows what we need more than we do. Because we come to Jesus with, I just need you to do this, Jesus. But Jesus knows, no, this is what you need. And he knew she needed a relationship with him. Not just a transaction with him. He granted her the faith to believe. And she believed. And she is his daughter. Wow. You notice that both of them were awful public in their faith. That's what baptism is, isn't it? Public declaration of an inward reality. But can I say this, y'all? And I don't want to be dogmatic per se, but let's just acknowledge, and even when you read your Bible, faith is is a public thing. I don't know how, how we get around it. You know, faith is lived out, you know, in the community of faith and in the world. It's expressed, it's tangible, it's kinetic. You move, you go, you do. Others actually see it. Others can't see your mind, your thoughts. Man, that's such a godly Christian right there, their head. I I bet their mind is so sanctified. No, your your faith is expressed in your your life. Now I'm going to give you an opportunity to apply this. I'm going to ask Carl and Scott to come out. We've got time for this. I'm going to wrap us up in a moment, but this is where you can apply the text. Uh, I've been praying, Jairus, we would be like Jairus and the woman. I want you to note in verse 27, she heard, this is very, she heard, she came, and she touched. I'm going to invite you to hear. I've been speaking. I hope the Lord has been speaking. Have you heard? Well, then come and touch Jesus. Well, Lord, what do you mean? Well, I'm just, it's very simple. I'm going to ask you if you want to, 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 to come, then I'm going to invite you to come down here and you can come up on these stairs. You can fill in this area right here. You can fill in the places along the wall. Maybe three people come. We don't need all this room, but I want you to come. And, 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 and you go, well, Lord, I don't have to come down there to apply this. And you don't. You really don't. I mean, maybe the faith for you is to stay in your chair and talk to God. It's totally okay. I hope you understand. This is not finny and finny. finny ism like a weeping bench and I'm going to I'm going to get you guys to cry and do something. I'm not trying to do that at all. But I am going to offer this. I believe that faith many times that transformation of the heart requires, can I say this, that your body moves. I I don't understand why it works that way, but I think it does oftentimes. It's certainly in the scripture we see this where God has so wired us that we, we, you know, it's it's in our head, but you know what, I need to walk. I need to do, someone needs to see me do something. I need to move my body to move that from my head to my heart. And that's all this is. So again, you do not have to come down here. Everyone can't come down. But but if you, you do what Jesus wants you to do. You know, get up, you walk down, people are going to look at you and go, they got a problem. Ooh, I bet they're living with shame. Well, the bottom line is, if, if you, if, 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 if we did, don't raise your hand, but who's, who's not living with some measure of shame in the room? Who's not living with shame? Are you kidding me? Every one of us. With this stuff we got, you know, I just want to invite you to do that. Carl's going to sing uh, over us. And uh, you may have someone come down that you see comes down and is kneeling, and you just want to get up and put your hand on them. That's what I'm going to do if someone's up here. I want to put my, that's all, just a hand on them. You want to pray with them. If you do come up here and pray and it gets full and we feel along the sides, just kneel on the concrete, y'all. There's some, there's some prayer things right here around this 
podium you can kneel on. Maybe you just need to stand. Maybe you're just sitting and you go, I can't go down there. I don't want to. Pers- I'm just going to stand up. That's my, that's my physical expression of my faith that I need. So you can just stand where you are. I'm going to ask you if you do to remain standing. I'm going to ask you if you come down here to stay here. I'm not going to have you go back to your chair. Stay here till I dismiss the service so you don't feel, you know, you don't have to go back through people and everything else. But if you feel so led, this is just, it's just an invitation. Move it from our head to our hearts, oh God. If you want to come down here and, you know what I mean when I say touch Jesus, y'all. I'm not trying to be weird. I'm just trying to help us apply and live this truth. You come down here and pray if you like as Carl sings over us.